Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. This is the story of one of the most unusual, unsolved serial murder cases the world has ever seen. The story of a serial killer that broke every golden rule of the FBI's criminal profiling system. The story of a series of killings and a killer who has never been caught. This is the story of the Tic-Tac-Toe Strangler. In the early hours of Sunday the 20th of March 1982, police in Bell County, Texas were visited by the mother and co-worker of 18-year-old Julie Tarkowski. Julie had failed to return home from her job in the nearby mall. She was never late home from work. In fact, she was never late for anything. Julie's mother told police that her daughter worked in a fashion store in the recently opened Killeen Mall three nights a week. She was a studious young lady and a popular member of the high school cheerleading team, whose job at the weekend was helping her to save to go to college to study accountancy. Julie's co-worker told the police that she helped Julie lock up the store at approximately 9.30pm, stating that the two of them were among the last at the mall. The place was largely deserted. By 11.30pm, when Julie Tarkowski failed to return home, her mother went to the mall to look for her daughter. She discovered that Julie's car was the only one left in the darkness of the parking lot. There was nobody else around. Julie's car keys were still in the ignition and on the passenger seat was Julie's book bag and purse, all suggesting that she had at least reached her car safely, but had left in a hurry. There was no sign of Julie. She was gone. A sinking feeling of dread settled in Julie Tarkowski's mother's gut. Frantic, Mrs. Tarkowski called Julie's co-worker, who immediately had a similar, 
gut-wrenching sense of foreboding. Sharing the fear, the co-worker immediately drove to Mrs. Tarkowski and decided to wait with her for Julie to come home or to help in the search for her. When the clock hit 1.30am on the morning of Sunday the 20th of March, the bird decided to go to Bell County Police. They didn't know where else to turn. Police were dispatched to the mall to investigate Julie's car with a dog handler to track Julie. Using the scent from Julie's belongings, the dog picked up her trail. However, the trail went cold, only a few parking spaces away, telling the police that Julie had got into another vehicle, either willingly or by force. It was now evident that she had left the mall with someone else. But who? The parking lot yielded no further clues. According to senior Bell County Detective Lieutenant Michael Gray, there were no further clues found in Julie's car. They had searched the vehicle for fingerprints, any type of items in the car that may not belong to her, or may offer a clue to the identity of the person who accosted her that night. Twenty days later, on the 10th of April, a man out for an afternoon walk with his dog in a secluded area of Bell County, Texas, made a horrifying discovery. The lifeless body of a young woman. He ran from the scene in fear and called to the police. arrived, they found the reported body of a female lying in a dry ditch surrounded by scrubland. Lieutenant Michael Gray from Bell County Major Crimes Unit was called to lead the investigation team. From the description, Lieutenant Gray immediately knew they had found Julie Tarkowski. She was wearing an orange boiler suit similar to prison uniform. She had marks around her neck, indicating strangulation. But the most disturbing aspect of this discovery was found on her forehead. Something sharp had been used to engrave the sketch game, tic-tac-toe on her forehead. The body was removed and sent off for further analysis. Investigators began scouring the area for clues, looking for anything that might identify Julie's killer. Bloodstains were found in the ditch, but later tests showed that they belonged to the victim. The autopsy would reveal a little more information. The medical examiner concluded that Julie's body had been left in the ditch for about three days. She had been strangled. 
the game tic-tac-toe that had been played on her forehead, had been carved into her flesh with a sharp medical-style blade. Her hands were bound behind her back, but there was no evidence of a sexual assault, despite the fact that she was naked beneath the orange prison-issue-style jumpsuit. Perhaps this was a sign that the killer, whoever he may be, wanted to make it clear to Julie that she was a prisoner. His prisoner. And perhaps her final sentence would be death. But this was nothing more than Lieutenant Michael Gray's speculation. In terms of factual details, her body was otherwise clean, like she had been taken care of during her short incarceration. There were no signs of dehydration or malnourishment. There was also some biological evidence found beneath her nails. Human skin particles were discovered, together with tiny drops of blood that did not belong to her potential evidence that the police hoped may help identify the killer. To further their investigation, police returned to the mall to question other employees. One woman revealed that when she left the mall at around 9pm, as she entered the darkness of the car park, she noticed a creepy-looking male just sitting there in his car. Although she could not identify the make and model of the car in question, she did not want to stare at him too long. His features were shrouded in shadows, and she could not offer a description of the creepy man's face. Investigators knew there was a predator in the community, and they had little evidence to take forward for their investigation. The premeditated nature and unusual circumstances surrounding the disappearance and ultimate murder of Julie Tarkowski, the orange boiler suit, the way that she had been fed and watered during her time as a captive, the game tic-tac-toe engraved into the forehead of her corpse all made the detectives fear that the predator that kidnapped and killed her would go on to kill and kill again. The premeditated, controlled nature of the crime brought a sense of urgency to the investigation. Fearing that this would not be an isolated case, the police immediately contacted the FBI's forensic lab in Washington, D.C. Lieutenant Gray had a detective carry the forensic evidence to the lab. It was an attempt to expedite the process and bring the FBI in as an immediate active partner. What clues had the killer left behind? There was nothing. Just two weeks later, 
calm of another weekend was broken by another sinister discovery. In Lamar County, in the northeast of the same state of Texas, another body was found. Again, in an isolated rural area of an interstate, the body once more was a young female. On first inspection, she was in her late teens to early twenties. Like Julie Tarkowski, she was dressed in a prison issue style, orange, short-sleeved boiler suit. Her hands had been tied tightly with rope behind her back. There was heavy bruising around her neck, indicating strangulation. And sickeningly, on her forehead, a game of tic-tac-toe had been carved with something sharp into her flesh. Lieutenant Brad Robinson of Lamar County Police placed a call to Bell County Police and spoke to Lieutenant Michael Gray. There was a clear link between this body and the Bell County murder of Julie Tarkowski. On hearing the news of another body, Lieutenant Michael Gray made the three and a half hour drive to Lamar County without hesitation. But who was this new victim? She had not been declared missing. Who was this victim? Victim number two. Fingerprint evidence yielded a positive identification. 22-year-old Jennifer Coleman had a criminal history of prostitution. Her life was transient and chaotic, and as such she had not been reported missing. The pathologist confirmed that the woman was strangled, like the previous victim. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Also, like the previous victim, the tic-tac-toe game had been carved into her forehead by a medical-type scalpel blade, as used on the body of Julie Tarkowski. There was also biological evidence beneath the nails of Jennifer Coleman. Blood and skin particles, as there had been beneath the nails of Julie Tarkowski. Lieutenant Gray and Lieutenant Robinson joined forces to share and collate information. It was at this point that both detectives knew for sure that they were dealing with a serial killer who had started living out his fantasies of killing young women, according to his own macabre ritual. It was difficult to pin down exactly when Jennifer Coleman went missing, largely due to her chaotic lifestyle. But based on the clothes that she was wearing and the way that she had been bound, it was clear to see that both women had been killed by the same man. Both women had been strangled their bodies dumped in semi-rural areas with no effort to hide them. Then the most bizarre of all, the game tic-tac-toe had been played on their flesh, carved onto both victims' forehead with a scalpel-type blade. These
these were the obvious similarities. The differences between victims would present more questions than answers, however. Typically, both victims were very different. One was a student with ambitions of becoming an accountant and working in finance. The other was a prostitute and drug addict with a chaotic and transient lifestyle. Both victims had been murdered in the same state, but not the same locality. They were different counties, between three and four hours drive apart. What did this tell us about the killer? Did he work in one county and live in another? Was he a truck driver or someone who would travel with work to different areas of the state? Once again, the crime scene evidence was hand-delivered to the FBI lab in Washington, and their extensive lab investigations had discovered something very interesting. The skin particles and blood sample found beneath the nails of Julie Tarkovsky belonged to the second victim, which suggested the two women had been kept together at the same time by their kidnapper and killer. What did the killer seek to gain from this? Had the two victims come into conflict in some way? Had the killer forced them to fight? The prostitute ultimately proving to be the winner. Was the second victim Jennifer Coleman, an active part of the murder of Julie Tarkovsky? Did she play the tic-tac-toe game that was carved into Julie's forehead with a scalpel blade? Was she forced to do so? Or did she do so willingly? Who was she playing the game with? The killer. Or perhaps someone else was present. And was the game carved into Julie's forehead while she was still alive, feeling every cut and slice? Or was she an unfeeling corpse at the time? And if the killer played the tic-tac-toe game that was carved onto the victim's forehead with the second victim, why? What was the purpose? Was she playing for her life? If she had won the game of tic-tac-toe, would she be free? Would he have released her? And if that is the case, who played the tic-tac-toe game that was carved onto the forehead of the second victim? Was it the killer? And yet another victim that he had kidnapped. Another victim that was about to die too. Number three. The FBI speculated that the tic-tac-toe game played an incredibly important role in this sick killer's methodology. They believed that the killer was kidnapping women maybe two or three at once. He 
would then decide which one would die. And he gave the second an opportunity to live if they could win the game of tic-tac-toe. They believed the killer was kidnapping women, maybe two or three at once. And with them, he would play a sick, macabre game. He would decide which one would die first, and then give the second an opportunity to live, if they could win a game of tic-tac-toe, a bloody game, played by carving into another victim's forehead, either pre- or post-death. If the second victim could win, they would live. If they lost, they would die. It was just a theory, but to the FBI profilers it made sense, and implied deep-seated sadism as part of the makeup of this killer. Tic-tac-toe is a zero-sum game. If you know how to play, you can't lose a tic-tac-toe. If your opponent knows what they are doing, winning is impossible. The game is a zero-sum game. If both players are playing with an optimal strategy, every game will end in a draw. And so, what is the message in this? Is the killer saying that he cannot be beaten? Is he taunting the place, telling them that they will never beat him? Or is he saying that in the game of murder, there are no winners, nobody wins, while it is still a game that he cannot lose. Beyond all the Federal Bureau speculation, there was one thing that they were convinced of. There was a third victim in the clutches of this killer. The blood sample and the skin particles beneath the nails of victim number two convinced them that they belonged to the next victim. They needed to work fast to catch this killer before the third victim turned up dead, if she wasn't already. But where do they begin to look? With two victims totally different in terms of their demographic backgrounds. With deposition sites in two separate counties hundreds of miles apart. There was no local pattern. No victim type to be defined as yet. On one level, the killer seemed like an opportunist. With the kidnap and murder of Julie Tarkowski. On another level, he was methodical, well planned, almost ritualistic.
were no descriptions of a potential suspect strong enough to create a composite sketch. No leads. Nothing to go on. All the FBI and local Texas law enforcement agencies could do was scour the names and details of any women reported recently missing in Texas. And sit and wait. It was Mother's Day, May the 9th, 1982, a warm spring afternoon in Collin County, Texas. After spending time with their moms, two boys ran off to fly parachutes made from plastic bags. It was a wonderful afternoon, a lovely way to spend a Sunday. But soon, the winds brought a foul smell. They began to investigate, and found a site that they would remember for the rest of their life. What the boys found was the body of a woman, lying hidden in a clutch of trees, just a few hundred yards from the open space where they had decided to play. police arrived with a medical examiner. It was decided that she had been there for a number of days, perhaps a couple of weeks. She was wearing the now familiar orange short-sleeve prison-issue type jumpsuit. There was dried blood all over her face. There had been signs of animal activity on her arms and her nose. There was heavy bruising around her neck, consistent with strangulation. Her wrists had been bound behind her back, and there were blisters of decaying flesh and insects covering her body. Behind the dried blood on her forehead, the familiar markings of the game tic-tac-toe could be seen carved into her flesh. Collins County Police knew all too well that there was a killer being dubbed the Tic-Tac-Toe Strangler on the loose, murdering women in Texas. The killer had struck in Bell County, Lamar County, and now there was a new victim and a new deposition site in Collins County, Texas. The autopsy confirmed cause of death was asphyxia caused by strangulation. And although there had been some insect activity on the deceased, the tic-tac-toe markings on the woman's forehead could clearly be made out, and the pathologist confirmed that the same sharp, scalpel-type medical blade had been used to carve the game into her skin and flesh. The body was badly decomposed. Forensic evidence was sent off to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C., who confirmed that this victim's biological matter 
match the same that was found beneath the nails of the previous victim, Jennifer Coleman. Was this victim, victim number three, the one who had carved the tic-tac-toe game onto the forehead of victim number two? Was it a game that she played with the killer, who had been keeping all three girls captive? And why was she playing? Was the killer daring her to beat him at this sick, macabre, bloody version of the game? And what would her prize be for victory? Would she win her freedom? And would not winning mean death? Interestingly, unlike the other two victims, she had no biological evidence beneath her nails. So did the killer play the game himself? Calmly, slicing tic-tac-toe into the forehead of his latest victim. And if so, it was clearly a message. What could the message be from a zero-sum game? A game that should not be won or lost. Without any question, the person or persons that had killed this woman had also killed Julie Tarkowski and Jennifer Coleman. This woman was the third victim. Who was she? What was her name? The body was so badly decomposed it would have taken some time to get an identification. Except the deceased had a photograph taped to her torso. The photograph was of three women wearing orange jumpsuits in cages made big enough to stand up in. The cages were next to each other, and all women were still alive. Proof that the three women were kidnapped and not killed immediately, but kept captive together, alive, until the time came for them to die. In what order they were selected to die, we know. But why they died, we will never know. One FBI theory is that they were made to play puzzles, perhaps tic-tac-toe, and their success or failure at the game may have resulted in their death. The FBI went through the missing persons list and found a match to the victim in the photograph, confirming her identity. The victim's lifestyle, like the two before, fitted no pattern. 21-year-old Josephine Gomez was a shy factory worker who lived with her family. She had been reported missing three weeks previous, after not returning from a night out in a bar with friends. Her family were running their own campaign to find her, as... There was only so much local police could do to help. She was not a prostitute and had no criminal history. 
this detail gave the FBI a real headache. There was an unknown serial killer with a random victim selection at large in Texas. Where he was struck next and what type of victim was not something that could be predicted. The three victims were not similar in appearance. Their social demographics were different. The only thing they had in common was that they lived in the state of Texas, although geographically not close to each other, and their first names all began with the letter J. Julie. Jennifer. Josephine. And this was the only significant thing that the FBI could cling to in terms of victim selection. The FBI developed the theory that the letter J was significant to the killer. If this theory was correct, this also meant that the victim, Julie Tarkowski, was a premeditated selection. Originally, the police believed that Julie was kidnapped by an opportunistic killer who saw a girl alone in the darkness in a deserted parking lot and took her. But the weight of evidence would suggest the killer knew her identity, knew her name began with J, had probably stalked her, researched her movements from the shadows before kidnapping and killing her when the time was right. Likewise, the prostitute Jennifer Coleman, the killer would have known her identity before he kidnapped her and marked her to die. What felt like an opportunistic crime was actually a well-planned, methodical kidnapping. So, did the letter J mean something significant to the killer? The FBI went to the press in May 1982. There was a killer on the loose. He'd killed three women in different counties in the state of Texas. All three women had a first name beginning with the letter J. They were looking for a person who the letter J may be significant to. He may have a previous prison sentence or had spent some time in jail either as a prisoner or a prison worker like a guard. All three victims were found wearing prison issue style orange jumpsuits. All three victims were found with the game tic-tac-toe carved into their forehead. So games may be significant to the killer. The killer was also thought to be highly organized forensically quite aware, and with impeccable attention to detail, the FBI implored all women in Texas with a first name beginning with the letter J to be vigilant if they feel they are being followed, or if they receive any unusual attention, they should inform their local police authority immediately. The FBI appealed to the public for their help. Someone, somewhere, knows this killer. If there is anyone in their life acting out of the ordinary 
or whose behavior has changed, in Texas especially, they should come forward and share that information. They appealed to the killer to give himself up. Murder was a zero-sum game. There can be no winners. Everyone is a loser. He was probably ill, and he should give himself up so that help could be accessed, and that the FBI would give him any help he needed. The press immediately gave the killer the moniker, the Tic-Tac-Toe Strangler. It was after the FBI's public appeal that the spate of killings stopped. Weeks and months went by. There were plenty of calls about abusive boyfriends and husbands with weird kinks connected to puzzles and games, but nothing concrete, nothing that could link any person to all three murders. Spring turned to summer, autumn came and went, winter took hold and 1982 turned into 1983 without a single other victim. Some killers are highly organized and controlled, killing with a methodological clinical precision. Others are slaves to a violent, uncontrollable rage, saturating their victims and the crime scene with their fury. How a murderer behaves tells much about who he is. There tends to be psychological rules that each killer will obey, and this is how the FBI flesh out a profile of a modus operandi that most killers will stick to. It is rare to find a serial killer that defies the rules, that forces the FBI to throw out their rule book and start a game from scratch. What was to happen next? would test the mettle of even the most seasoned of investigators. It was the spring of 1983, March the 20th. Almost 12 months from when the first killing began, and after a 10-month lull in activity, the tic-tac-toe strangler had resurfaced, but not in the state of Texas as every FBI profiler had expected. There was a new twist to confuse the FBI further. The body of a woman was discovered by two cousins who were walking through Green Sullivan State Forest in the state of Indiana. The cousins were on their way to set up camp for the weekend, to enjoy a weekend of fishing, when they happened upon the macabre discovery. They immediately dropped their heavy bags and fishing equipment 
and in a state of panic, ran to get help. Quickly, Green County Police responded, quickly followed by detectives from Indiana State Police. They soon realized that this was a case for the FBI. The deceased was wearing an orange prison-style issue jumpsuit. Her hands were bound with rope behind her back. On her neck was bruising, indicating strangulation. Whilst on her forehead, there had been carved the sketch game. Tick, tack, toe. This was unquestionably the work of the tic-tac-toe strangler. But miles upon miles away from Texas, in a new state, Indiana. And again, the killer's victim tore up the FBI profiler's rulebook. She was African-American, and usually, Serial killers don't cross racial boundaries. Once the crime scene had been isolated for forensic examination, the body was bagged and sent to the coroner. The post-mortem confirmed cause of death by asphyxia caused by strangulation. Like the previous victims of spring 1982, on her forehead, the sketch game Tic-Tac-Toe had been carved with the same or similar medical scalpel. Her body had been kept in good condition and there were no signs of a sexual assault, nor were there signs of dehydration or malnourishment. The FBI presumed that she had been kidnapped by the killer and was likely kept in a cage similar to the photograph of the three previous victims of 1982. And so, begged the question, were there other victims who had been kidnapped and were currently caged somewhere by the maniac, dressed in an orange jumpsuit, waiting to be murdered? If that was the case, as the FBI believed, they would have to work quickly. Was there any biological evidence on the victim that may be from the killer? Or perhaps indicate the presence of another victim? Samples of something below the victim's nails were sent to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. and showed that there was blood and tissue that did not belong to the victim. Did this biological matter belong to the elusive killer? Or perhaps another potential murder victim he had kidnapped and was keeping incarcerated until the moment arrived when he would kill her? All they could do was speculate while they tried to quickly establish the identity of victim number four. Detectives identified the victim from fingerprints. 19-year-old Linda Prouse had only recently been released from jail in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
on a prostitution arrest when she disappeared. She was last seen working the red light district of Cincinnati with a friend, another prostitute, on St. Patrick's Day, Thursday the 17th of March. This could mean that the killer may have kidnapped the victim in a neighboring state and then drove three hours or so across state lines to deposit the victim's body. Geographically, this was confusing. To the FBI, this killer was so methodical and careful in his planning that there had to be some profound meaning behind the reason for the deposition site that went beyond just confusing the investigation. Were there more victims in cages playing games that cannot be won under the false promise of release? It was frustrating and it was time pressed. They had to work quickly. But this latest killing provoked more questions than answers. To begin with, the victim's name started with the letter L, not the letter J. Was the letter L now significant, and why? The deposition site was in the state of Indiana, even though the deceased was last seen in Ohio. Why? What was the killer trying to say? Was this another puzzle? Was he deliberately trying to confuse the FBI? Was he taunting them, playing games? Or was he trying to tell them something? This type of shifting pattern is rare in serial killers and was making this one difficult to second guess. The FBI released a statement declaring the tic-tac-toe strangler had struck again and gave a warning to all females in Indiana and the neighboring states to be extra vigilant. Would the killer strike again in this area? Or would he return to his original hunting ground, Texas? With four dead, and the very real prospect that two other potential victims had already been captured by the killer, detectives were desperate and became obsessed with the case. There was no prime suspect. There was no prime profile of the potential killer, despite the best efforts of the FBI. Their best approach consisted of guesswork. There was little that they could do without a breakthrough tip-off from the public, except to sit and wait. On Sunday the 27th of March 1983, the fifth victim of this sadistic strangler was discovered in McCormick's Creek State park. The body was discovered by a local scoutmaster about 200 meters into the Wolf Cave Trail, not far from Wolf Cave parking area. He was walking the trail as a reconnaissance mission 
to assess any dangers before he took his scout troop along that trail as part of an expedition in two weeks time. He had not bargained for finding the dead body of a young female along the route. He quickly ran back to the car to get help and called the police. It would be a morning of his life that he would never forget. Owen County Police soon arrived. They duly informed Indiana State Police who quickly followed. From the Scoutmaster's brief description in which he stated the deceased was wearing an orange jumpsuit and her hands were tied with rope behind her back. They all knew that this was the work of the tic-tac-toe strangler before they arrived. And sure enough, when police arrived, they found the deceased, dressed exactly where the scoutmaster directed them. She was lay on her front, with her hands tied behind her back. She was again African-American. There was the familiar sketch game, tic-tac-toe, the symbol of the killer, carved into her forehead. There was the familiar bruising around the neck, a sign of strangulation. They had expected another victim. They just didn't know when or where the next body would materialize. It became incredibly frustrating for the FBI and police alike to find themselves expecting people to die because they hadn't uncovered the type of evidence that could lead them to a prime suspect for a series of killings that had an M.O. complicated enough to keep the very best guessing. The deceased was bagged, while the crime scene was isolated for investigation in the hope of turning up a clue that would lead to the killer. But there were no clues. This killer was meticulous in the extreme. The autopsy report confirmed death by asphyxia caused by strangulation. The tic-tac-toe markings on the forehead of the body could be concluded to be caused by the same blade as the previous victims. Again, there was no sign of sexual assault. The body also showed no sign of dehydration or malnutrition. Again, beneath the nails of the deceased, there seemed to be biological evidence, skin tissue and blood, almost as if deliberately placed there, perhaps by the killer. Was he signposting the identity of a potential sixth victim? The evidence was quickly taken to the FBI labs in Washington, as had been the case with the previous victims. The FBI confirmed that the skin and blood particles found under the nails of the previous victim, victim number four, Linda Prouse, belonged to this victim, victim number five. The FBI now believed that this biological matter had been placed there deliberately by this meticulously methodical killer, almost as a clue of who the next victim may be. It was eerie, 
to think that the skin and blood under the nails of victim number five may belong to victim number six, yet to be discovered. As for this body, the fifth victim of the elusive and well-organized tic-tac-toe strangler, fingerprints identified her as 21-year-old Lucille Williams, a part-time student, again from Cincinnati, Ohio. She was last seen leaving a convenience store over a month ago, a reminder that the victims discovered were not always in order of capture. What grabbed detectives was her first name, like the previous victim. It began with the letter L, and there was an interest in her capture site. Cincinnati was shared with victim number four, her deposition site, though not the same as victim number four. The body was still carried across state lines and deposited inside the state of Indiana, when Ohio would have been the easier choice. So why? What was the killer communicating? When a killer is so methodical, it is very rare that the things they decide to do are by coincidence or chance. Once again, there were no clues at either the deposition site or on the body of number five that could link them to the identity of the killer. All they could do would be to wait for a breakthrough or for body number six. And so it was. It was Mother's Day, Sunday the 8th of May, 1983, exactly like the previous year, when the sixth and final victim was discovered in Shade State Park, Indiana. A couple were out walking in Pine Hills Nature Preserve in the east of the park. The killer had made no real effort to hide his victim, yet another young African-American female, face down, her arms bound with rope behind her back, wearing the familiar orange prison-style jumpsuit. The police arrived quickly, alerting the FBI to the discovery. The victim was examined and found to be still warm. She was a fresh kill. The killer shouldn't be too far away. And so detectives were ordered to take the names and details of any member of public that was in the local area. Rolling victim number six over. The first thing noticeable were the markings on her forehead, the familiar tic-tac-toe sketch game carved into her flesh, the wound appearing fresh, seeping with blood, 
On her neck could be seen the familiar bruising that signposted strangulation. Once the crime scene was secure, the body was bagged and taken to the mortuary for further investigation. Further examination of the crime scene and the surrounding area yielded no significant clues. The pathologist confirmed the cause of death to be asphyxia caused by strangulation. She was recently dead, killed within the last six hours. Attached to her body was a Polaroid photo, as there was on victim number three. In this photo was the image of Linda Prouse, Lucille Williams, and the poor dead girl herself. In the photograph, all three women are alive, wearing orange jumpsuits, standing in cages that stand next to each other. A mirror of the photo on victim number three from the first set of killings. There were no further signs of sexual assault, and this time, like the third victim, there were no signs of biological matter placed under her fingernails. The deceased was identified as Lillian McGuire, a 20-year-old mother of one and bride-to-be. She had vanished from a Cincinnati street corner in the middle of the day on March the 11th, 1983. Her family had been running their own Find Lillian campaign and had been in touch with detectives recently, concerned that the tic-tac-toe strangler may have abducted her. When bodies started turning up in Indiana, the victims taken from the city of Cincinnati, all with the name beginning with the letter L. When the forensic evidence was analyzed by the FBI labs in Washington, there were no further clues to be found. No fingerprints, no DNA, no material or carpet fibers, nothing. The hunt for the killer was no further on when the killing started in the spring 1982. There was no breakthroughs, no leads, no prime suspect, and there were now six victims, and the killer was still at large. Spring rolled into summer. Summer quickly turned into the fall. Winter arrived, and 1983 turned into 1984, and throughout that time, there were no further killings. The FBI were convinced that there would be more killings to follow, more victims of murder. They had decided that the killer was a seasonal killer, and they braced themselves for the arrival of spring 1984. They believed that the kidnappings and killings would start again, but where they would happen, they could not predict. Although they were sure, they would happen. Spring 1984 arrived. The tic-tac-toe strangler never did materialize. As far as anyone is aware, he never killed again. Why? We don't know. The FBI speculate that the killer may have died, or he may be incarcerated for another crime, and has never confessed to anyone about his murderous spree of spring 1983 
in spring 1984. Serial killers very rarely stop once they start, so they believe that something happened to him. With the advancement of DNA as the decades have passed, there have been no further clues from the forensic evidence from any of the crime scenes to solve the mystery. The identity of the tic-tac-toe strangler is a mystery that may never be solved. One theory is that the letters J and L are significant. It has also been suggested that T for Texas may also be significant, and I for Indiana may also be significant, especially as the second set of victims were kidnapped in the state of Ohio, but deliberately deposited in Indiana. What can be made of the letters J, L, T, I? One suggestion theorized by authors and amateur sleuths, is that they form the word jilt. Could this have been the trigger moment for the killer? Was he a man scorned once, jilted, and this began his killing spree? We will never know. One thing that most amateur sleuths believe is that the tic-tac-toe strangler was one of the most methodical and highly organized serial killers ever known, and his identity, like Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac Killer, will always remain.